0: Lord, um, this teaching is difficult for us because it goes against what the message is that we've been hearing all throughout the world. It is a message of rebuke, love, and discipline. For a lot of us, Lord, we don't associate these words with you. But Father, the way you love us is by rebuking us and restoring us and by exposing falsehood and immorality amongst us. That is what your love is. So we pray that as we study this passage, may you rescue us from the incorrect understanding that we have of you. And may you, may our spirits agree with your with your view of things, so that so that this passage will be the guide in which we deal with one another in this body. Father, I know that I can't do anything apart from you. My words are just words. It is your spirit that makes these words be convicting and true. So I look to you and you alone for your great work to be done through these through this word. All this in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we are um, continuing our series on 1 Corinthians, and so like I said before, the reason, I, the reason I'm preaching about this topic today is not because I've heard anything, but it's simply this is where we where we are. We're going through the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and we landed on this chapter. I was kind of hoping the pastor wouldn't land on this chapter, but, you know, got out of it, so I'm I'm, I'm dealing with this chapter. So... Paul's letter to the first Corinthians is a letter of rebuke and correction and love. Because he loved the Corinthians, because he is their spiritual father, when he heard news about the the certain way that they are living and behaving, out of his great love for them, he wrote this letter. And the the way Paul loves these people, it's not simply tolerating their evil. No, he is rebuking, He he is exposing their evil, and he is rebuking their evil. And at times, Paul gets really, really tough. He sometimes uses sarcasm, he sometimes uses shame in the part of the letter, all for the purpose of exposing their sins. The way Paul loves the Corinthians, if you think about it, it's, quite, it's quite, it will seem unloving and harsh, especially for those of us living in modern times. Because for, the, for, the, for those of us living in modern times, the definition of love is tolerance, right? It's to, it's to, it's to accept people for what they are. That's the global message of love. But that is not the love practiced by Paul. He is not tolerating their evil. He's exposing it, he's rebuking it, so that they will be restored unto God. If you look at the way Paul writes to the Corinthians, it is very different from the way that certain pastors preach to their, preach to their congregation. For example, I've heard a sermon from one of the largest churches in America. I'm not going to tell you what church, I'm not going to tell you the pastor. But in that sermon, the pastor was kind of proud, I think, of the makeup of his congregation. He said, in my congregation, there is a, there is a man who was an ex-husband, right? He got a divorce from a woman. His same-sex partner, his ex-wife, her boyfriend, and their children all attending the same church. And he was so proud that, they, that the modern American family, right? The man, his boyfriend, the ex-wife, her boyfriend, and the kids, he was so proud that, that his congregation was comprised of such people. If you think about it though, the world will say that pastor's view of his congregation is more in line with Christian love than what Paul is doing. Paul is not tolerating anything. He's exposing things. He's not proud of their morality. He is impatient with their morality. So to us, it seems like that mega church pastor is doing a more loving thing than what Paul is doing. But from what we, for what we will see from studying this passage together, what Paul is doing is more consistent with God's definition of love than what the megachurch pastor is doing. Let's think, about, let's think about Christianity 101. The basic Christianity is this. According to John, Jesus is the light of the world. He came to the world to rescue us from our darkness. Jesus, if Jesus was simply to tolerate our darkness, he would have never come. The fact that he came is a rebuke against our darkness. That's the greatest, that's how how the Bible defines love. While we were sinners, Christ died. If God was simply a tolerant God of our sins, He would have never sent Jesus Christ. Why would He? The fact that Christ came and the fact that Christ died is a rebuke of our sins, is an exposure of our sins. He forgives our sins. Yes, it's true. But by simply, by coming, He exposes what we are so that He can forgive us, so that He can restore us. What Paul is doing is more, more consistent with the mission of Jesus Christ than the mega church passage that I mentioned before. So, like we like we studied um, in the previous weeks, the Corinthians had a lot of problems, right? They were prideful, you know. They they, have, they were infighting. They had you know they 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 had sections, right? They they some followed this person, the other followed this person. And so Paul, Paul addressed all these problems. So the topic that Paul is addressing to them today is the topic of sexual morality. So what is going on in, t- in chapter 5? Paul is addressing the sexual and moral practice of a certain individual of the church. For those of us, I mean, I think I, mean, I, think I preach about sexual morality quite often, but that's a review. Let's see. Let's let's once again look at what sexual morality is. The Greek word for sexual morality is the word porneia, right? And it is any type of sexual activity that is outside the bounds of marriage. And in order to understand why sexual morality is such a sin, you need to understand. We need to understand what God has made sex to be. God has made us into uh, as sexual beings. It's true. Sex is not evil, right? Sex is God ordained, God designed. And sex, what sex is, according to scriptures, is a physical celebration, a representation of the union between a, a man and a woman who comes together to form one flesh. So sex is a physical, represent, physical representation of this union between two distinct people, man, man and a woman, coming together to form one flesh. Sex is a physical celebration, manifestation of that union. Like I said, like, like if, if I ever do your weddings, this is what I'm always going to say. The union between man and wife is the most sacred of our relationships, because it is the only relationship in the universe that represents the Trinitarian union of God. God is three distinct people, three distinct persons, but they are one God. Marriage is representation of that. It's a man and a woman. And the reason why, once again, homosexuality is is, is not in accordance to God's design is the reason why God designed a man and a woman as two distinct people, it is so that for for these two distinct beings to come together to form one flesh. And sex is a part of that celebration, that union. And, And when it is within the confines of the total spiritual, material, moral union between a man and a wife, that sex makes sense. Sexual morality is any sexual activity that is done outside of this divine ordained celebration of the relationship between man and wife. Any sexual activity that's done outside of that bond is immoral. Immoral because it is against God's design. Sexual morality is not about the union between, between a man and a wife, it is about our appetites. It is about our control. It is about our consumption. It is about us. It is about me. And when it's done outside of God's ordained design for sex, sex is a powerful weapon that destroys souls. The whole world is suffering because of sexual immorality. People consuming and using and discarding each other. It is, all, it is ultimately about us, about me, my appetite, my dominance, my control. And because, because and sex affects both not only our bodies, it affects our mental psyche and it affects our spirits. More than any other sin, sex has the ability to, 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 to dominate, to, to influence our thoughts and our psyche and our morals. It is a very dangerous thing when, we're, when we do it outside of what God ordained us to be. So that's why sexual morality is such a heinous sin. But the sexual morality that is going on in Corinth, in, in chapter 5 today, is not just sexual morality, but this person, this man in the church, was sleeping with his father's wife. It's not the way the way the, the way the relationship is described in Greek. He's not having incest with his mother, but he is having continuously having sexual immorality, sexual relationship with his, his father's wife. And it's not just a one-time thing; he's continually doing that kind of activity. And he is member of that church. And everyone knows about it. Why? Because Paul in verse 1 says, it has been reported to me. The word report means, it it means it has been common knowledge. So it was a common knowledge in the church of Corinth that this man was continually sleeping with his his father's wife. Everyone knew about it, with Paul is saying. And yet, Paul is saying, you guys aren't mournful over this. You guys are... Arrogant over this. That's what Paul says, right? And in verse 2, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? So Paul is not only astonished that such behavior is going on, Paul is more astonished that the members of that church is allowing this to happen. And he is calling that arrogant. Why is Paul calling the behavior of the fellow Christians in Corinth arrogant? It's because they're not, mourning over, they're not mourning over this sin. And why aren't they mourning over this sin? There's four possible explanations, people say. So the Corinthians were arrogant because they weren't mourning over their sins and they allowed the sin to happen amongst their midst. And one of the reasons why they're not mourning over their sins, one of the reasons why they're arrogant is, number one, the reason could be that the man who was committing this, this heinous sin was an important member of the church. Maybe he was in one of the leadership positions of the church. Maybe he was one of the deacons of the church. Maybe he was an influential man in society. Maybe he was a big donor, maybe he was a big giver to the church of Corinth. Whatever it is, scholars say there is, maybe there was something about this man's position and background that made the other members of the Corinthian church turn a blind eye against his behavior. In modern churches, it is easy for pastors to rebuke, I think, like high school kids or college kids. But it's another thing for us to approach someone who knows, does a lot for the church, who knows, that we, who gives a lot to the church. It is a more difficult thing to, in the in pastor's heart, because we can calculate the potential damage if that person leaves. So maybe that's what's going on with the Church of Corinth. Maybe they were too afraid to address this guy because they thought he's going to leave. A second reason why, you know, that they are turning a blind eye to him and not mourning over his sin is because maybe they have an incorrect definition of love. And maybe their definition of love is the same as our definition of love, which is tolerance. Maybe they said to themselves, we don't want to be all judgy, right? Everyone's a sinner, right? We all are, like, you know, imperfect. So who are we to judge? Let's just tolerate his sin. Maybe it is an incorrect definition of love that makes them arrogant and unwornful. third reason is... um, Maybe they didn't think what he was doing was wrong. Remember, Greek philosophy, and a lot of the members of the church of Corinth were Greeks. According to Greek philosophy, the human being is separated into the soul and the body. The soul is good and the body is bad. And when we die, the soul goes to be with God and the body rots. And therefore, a lot of them start to think, Well, if our souls are ultimately going with God and our body doesn't matter, it doesn't matter what we do with our bodies. God understands my soul, God loves my soul, and He doesn't care what I do with my body. And therefore, there's nothing wrong with being sexually immoral. Maybe the fourth reason why... Is that the fourth reason? Maybe the fourth reason why they thought it wasn't wrong and maybe the reason why they were arrogant is because they are looking at this sin not through the eyes of God's revelation in Scripture, but maybe they were looking at this sin based upon their understanding what sin is. It is clear what sexual God's standard is clear why sexual morality is wrong. But these people were not mourning over the sin because they're not defining the sin in the light of who God, who God, who God is, in the, light of who, in the light of God's truth. They're making their own self-determination of what is sin and what is not. And we do this all the time too, right? When we look at ourselves, maybe we're not thinking we're not, we're not as sinful as we are because we, we, the standard that we use to judge ourselves is not the standard that God uses to judge. Maybe we let the 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 philosophy and the thought process of society define us, right? Define what is define what is right and wrong, as opposed to how God defines right and wrong. Example that I can give you is this. This month, in, in the month, next month, the month of May, like supposedly the United Methodist Church, which is the second largest denomination in America, they were going to split in May. And they're going to split, the large, second largest denomination in America was going to split over the issue of, 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 of same-sex marriage and ordaining gay, gay pastors. And so there was going to be a split because the African members, members because the, Afri- the members of the African uh, United Methodist Church, Their saying is, we think, homosexuality is a sin, it's wrong, but it it goes against God's revealed will in Scripture. That's the African member's position. While the majority of the U.S. churches are saying, no, it's not a sin, right? They're defining same-sex union in the light of what what culture is saying, saying, with the light of what society is saying. And therefore, there is a friction. One church wants to honor what God, what, what God says in His Word. The other defines love in the way that society defines them. That is why there's a conflict. And likewise, all of us are very tolerant of our sins. Because we don't use the lens through God's revealed will. We use our own definition of what sin is. And for whatever reason, Maybe the guy was influenced, maybe they had a wrong definition of love, or maybe they were using society's definition of sin. Whatever reason, these Corinthian members did not think what that guy was doing was wrong. And Paul is calling them arrogant. Biblical arrogance is not only saying that you're better than anyone else. That's not what biblical arrogance is. Biblical arrogance is determining what, what right and wrong, but not based upon God's standard, but for me to be the determinant of what right or wrong is. That's biblical arrogance. Paul is addressing that in chapter 5. So there is immoral activity, the type of immoral activity, even the sexually promiscuous the city of Corinth is judging against. There is that kind of activity going on in the church. And the other members of the church are being tolerant about it. That's what's going on today. So what is Paul's remedy? What does Paul say to do with that member? He says, verse 3, For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. What does that mean? It means that even though that I am not with you physically, my spirit, I consider myself members of, of your church even though he's not physically present with them, because he's a founding pastor and because he's their spiritual father, he considers himself still the member of the church of Corinth. And he says, um, For though absent in my body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. Paul is making judgment against that person. He's condemning that person. And not only is Paul condemning that person, Paul says in verse 4, when you assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, you are to deliver that man to Satan. Delivering that man to Satan means excommunicate him, kick him out of the church. For Paul, the assembly, the people of God, right? People of God, the assembly, the church, is, is the dwelling place of God. Any place that is outside of the church of God, it's a dominion that belongs to Satan. So when Paul says, pronounce judgment and, and kick him out, it means next time you gather as a church, right? Convene a, me, convene a member's meeting, convene a member's meeting and excommunicate him. Throw him out of the church. Throw him into the world. Paul is saying, don't give another chance. Paul is not saying, tolerate his behavior. Paul is saying, kick him out. Don't tolerate his sin, Paul says. Kick him out. That seems very harsh to us. Doesn't everyone deserve a second chance? Right, Joe? Doesn't everyone deserve a second chance? Paul says, no. Kick him out. I was playing devil's advocate as I was writing this yesterday and I was envisioning an average Embrace member, right? And an average Embrace member will have, I think, three kinds of objections to what Paul is doing. Objection number one, isn't judgment bad? Paul is judging this man and Paul is telling the church to judge this man. Isn't, Isn't judgment a bad thing? For those of us who are in our scriptures, didn't Jesus say in Matthew 7, not to judge? So isn't judging this man inconsistent with Jesus' teaching? The world tells us not to judge. Jesus in Matthew 7 tells us not to judge. Then why is Paul judging? And why is Paul telling his people to judge? Ah, good question. The judgment that Jesus condemns in Matthew chapter 7 is a type of judgment where we judge another people's worth based upon our own standard of right and wrong. He was condemning the Pharisaical practice of con- condemning other people based upon the Pharisees' understanding of what God who God was. Judging other people based upon our standards that's evil. That's sin. The most common judgment is when you are fighting against your, fighting with your spouse, you are heaping all sorts of condemning things against your partner. That's what Jesus is saying you shouldn't do. You should not judge others based upon your standards because you are not God. Like for example, like I have the tendency to, like I said, judge other people based upon their outer appearance. I don't do it anymore because you know. But when I was younger, I used to do it. That was foolish and evil because I judged the worthiness of a person based upon how they, how they're put together. That is evil. That is irrelevant. That is dumb. Paul is not doing that. He's not telling the Corinthians to judge this man based upon their own understanding of what sin is. He's saying, judge this person based upon the standards of God's revealed will. We are not judging judging this man based upon what we think this man is. We are examining what this man is doing in the light of Scripture. In the light of Scripture, Conduct, judge this man judge, judge this man's conduct. Look the fact that they are so like Jesus in Matthew chapter 18 teaches his people how to properly rebuke someone right? In Matthew chapter 18 there is a process in which we rebuke someone. Matthew 18 Jesus says, if there is a brother who sins against you, go to that brother. And ask and revealed what, what he's doing doing and ask him to repent. If he doesn't repent, then Jesus says, take two or three witnesses, go to the man again, tell him he needs to rep- reveal his sins and tell him he needs to repent. If the man still doesn't listen to you and the two or three witnesses, then take the matter to the church, the members of the church and had the church reach out to the man and say, brother, you are sinning, you need to repent. And Jesus says, if he doesn't listen to the church, then you are to treat that person as as a Gentile, as an unbeliever, and you should kick him out. Biblical judgment, it's not being the moral police. It's not like me getting the Bible and examining carefully what Rob is doing, how Rob is living and pointing out, like, oh, Rob is in violation of Leviticus chapter 3. I don't know what Leviticus chapter 3 is, right? Like, like, but it's not calling for a moral policing, but biblical rebuke, right? Biblical repentance is, purpose is really about exposing the brother's sin so that that brother has, a, has, has, has the ability to repent and be restored to God and to the body. It is done with the spirit of love. Look, if I hear things about a certain behavior and if you hear something about what I do, you need to tell it to me, right? And I need to tell it to you. But me telling you and you telling me about my sins and your sins, that's not judgment. That's not condemnation. You approach me and I approach you because I love you and I want to and I and I want and we want to, to correct each other so we can restore to God for the, for the health of our church. Repentance is rebuking is not condemning, it is offering love. So that the brother can be restored to God and to the body. But approaching someone to rebuke them, that involves judgment, right? that involves saying what you're doing is wrong, brother. When I rebuke you, I'll be very gentle and I'll be very nice about it, right? But I'm still judging you based upon God's revealed will. And that's what we're called to do. We are not called, I am not called to judge you based upon what my standard, what, be, what proper behavior is, but I am to judge the members of the church and you are to judge the pastor based upon what God says, so that we will see, so that we'll be restored unto God. That's the answer to objection number one. Is, is judgment bad? It is only bad when we use our standards. The judgment that we pass, our, the pass during our spousal fights, that's evil. But approaching the brother based on Scripture so that that brother will be restored to God, that's love. And that leads to the second objection. second objection is this. The second objection is, isn't judgment very unloving? I kind, of, I kind of answered this before, right? We have the tendency to think that if we reveal someone's sin, that is very unloving, that is being un- intolerant. But once again, the biblical definition of love is exposing people's sins. So that they will go to God, so that they will be restored to God. That's love. Love is not being tolerant of their sins. It is so that give the opportunity, so that they will be, they will repent, and they'll be restored unto God. Look, the benefits of, you know, what you know, sleeping, not sleeping is you get to watch, you know, old movies. Sometimes you channel surf two or three in the morning. And you, you you come across like these old movies, right? And one of the movies that I came across like a couple of months, a couple of weeks ago was this movie about Studio 54. Studio 54, for for those of you who don't know, was in New York City in the in the mid to late 1970s. Studio 54 was where all the was the, was the was a nightclub where the biggest parties were at, right? If you're a who's who in New York City, you go to Studio 54 to party. And this movie was about Studio 54. And they didn't show you anything explicit, right? But so they were depicting what what was happening in Studio 54. Studio 54, like nightclubs, it always happens at night, right? No one in, no one go to Studio 54 broad daylight, right? Because, you know, right? Um, when I was when I was in, in the summer of ninety, I used to go clubbing in Seoul in the summer of ninety, right? That was like the dark period of PJ's life, and so like when I when I was because like I had this like. You know, a friend, an older friend, right? He used to be the, the the, 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 the club master, And I would just hang out with him, like, all day. So our routine was, in the afternoon, we would have to, like, you know, go to the comic book store or something to spend time, because we had to wait until night to go to the clubs. Because no one goes to the clubs in broad daylight, you know? It has to be night. Same with Studio 54. The club was happening at night. And when you go to the club, it's dark. You will never see like, bright-lit clubs. No, clubs always have to be dark. And in the night, in the darkness of night, people do things they won't normally do during the day. And that's what was happening in this movie. People were doing all sorts of things, like sexually immoral things, drugs, right? They were doing all sorts of things in this club. Well, there was a part of the movie, while the party was going on in the movie, some guy accidentally turned the light on. During the evening party, someone accidentally turned the light on. And people, for a brief second, when the light came on, people were seeing what they were doing, like, clearly. In the evening at night, they had no idea what they were doing. But when the light was on, they saw what they were doing to each other clearly. And that brief moment put a party to a stop because people didn't want to do what they were doing once they saw what they were doing. Biblical love is exposing the light to our darkness. We are very blind to the darkness that we have. We are. We are blind to our sins. But biblical love is stopping people from their sins by exposing their behavior, right, to to, 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 to the person. That's love. That's godly love. I can honestly say the way that I know God loves me is that he constantly exposes my sin so that I will repent, so that I'll be restored to him. It's an amazing thing. Maybe it is through you guys, maybe it is through my HR director, right? Maybe it is through my wife, maybe it is through my family, but God has a way of constantly exposing my failings. And when He does, I realize that's what He needed to forgive me, that's what Christ needed to die for me. When I realize that, my love for Him grows deeper. But make no mistake, God's great love for me, the way that I know He loves me is because He exposes my sins to me. That's love. And that's God's love for you. God's love is not just providing for you or answering your prayers. God's love is a real life work in your life. And the way he works in your life is he exposes your darkness to you. Perhaps through the sermon, perhaps through the members of your small group, perhaps through your HR director, perhaps through your family, whatever it is. He uses all things to expose your failings so that you will know why he needed to die for you. Exposure of your sin is love. Third objection. You'll say, well, I don't have a right to judge anyone. I'm a sinner, and how can a sinner judge another sinner? Therefore, I'm going to keep my mouth shut because I have no right to judge. Didn't Jesus say in John chapter 8, Right? He who, who, who has no sin cast the first stone against that adulterous woman? I have sinned, therefore I can't judge her. The answer to the abduction is this, once again. You are not called to judge the person on your standard. You are called to judge that person on, based on the revealed will of God, based on the authority of God, and the revealed will of God. We are called to do the loving thing by exposing our shortcomings to each other based on the revealed will of God. Listen, Paul is writing 1 Corinthians as a rebuke to the church. But let us remember where Paul's background. Paul was a persecutor of the church. Paul killed Christians. If there was one man who knew his sin, it was Paul. Because maybe some of the Christians that he was working with are victims of his persecution. So he knows if there is one person who knew that he was a sinner, that would be Paul. But Paul is rebuking the Corinthians. Not because Paul is playing God, but because that is the loving thing to do. Satan will whisper in your ear and says, don't approach that brother. He's going to hate you if you tell him your sins. Keep your mouth shut. But you are called to understand that the loving thing to do, if you notice a brother's sin, approach that brother or sister gently and ask them to repent. That's the loving thing to do. I'm very mindful of the time today. So, you know, maybe I'm going to cut it. I have so many other things to say. But maybe I'll stay that for next week. Right? But Paul is, Paul is saying that. Paul is saying, how do we deal with each other? Let's go to... So, so, so how do we deal with each other in the church? Um, Paul is saying in verse 7... Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you already are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover Lamb, has been sacrificed. Verse eight. Let us then, therefore, celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I was going to talk about the unleavened bread today, but because of time, I'll do it. Save it for next week. But basically, what Paul is the example that Paul is using the unleavened bread is that leaven was used to bake bread in, 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 in Jesus' in, 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 you know, time and Paul's time. Leaven was an ingredient that you, that you put in bread so that when, so, so leaven will make the bread rise. A small leaven can make the bread rise. And Paul is saying if you use an old leaven, right, the bread will rise, but the problem with using old leaven is old leaven carries around bacteria and disease. So, if you use an old leaven, when the bread rises, it's going to carry that bacteria and disease. Which basically, he's using this example to say, you should lovingly rebuke each other because um, our sins will affect the body. So, we'll talk more about that next week. But, but, but when Paul uses the example of a leavened bread, he has the Passover feast in mind. To the Jewish nation, the Passover feast is the one of the most important holidays. And the Passover meal, you, you eat unleavened bread. Right? And the way, the reason why God wanted the Israelites to eat unleavened bread was because to, 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 to make them remember that when God delivered Israelites out of Egypt, Israel didn't have time to use leaven to bake bread, right? Because it takes time for the leaven to rise the bread. And because God so hastily sent delivered them out of Egypt, the Israelites did not have time to use leaven to bake bread. So they ate unleavened bread. So you celebrate the Passover by eating unleavened bread. You celebrate God's deliverance over the Israelites celebrate God's deliverance over them from slavery by eating unleavened bread. Jesus says in verse 8: Likewise, as the Israelites eat unleavened bread to remember the Passover. You need to celebrate Lord Jesus Christ, who is the ultimate Passover lamb. It is through Christ that we, are, we have been redeemed by God. That it is through Christ that we have been, become God's people. And Paul says in verse 8, then how do you celebrate Jesus as the ultimate Passover lamb? The way you celebrate Jesus is not by treating each other with malice and evil, but treat each other with sincerity and truth. Jesus is saying is like Paul is saying, as the Israelites celebrated their Passover by eating unleavened bread, you are to celebrate Jesus Christ by treating each other with sincerity and truth. How do you celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ? How do you celebrate the fact that He has saved you, that He made you belong to God? You celebrate it by treating each other in sincerity and truth. The word sincerity means genuineness without hypocrisy. Genuineness. You approach the brother and sister genuineness, genuinely, but you approach the brother and sister in truth. You don't deal with one another based upon your perception of things. I don't deal with you based upon my perception of things. But I, treat, I, I deal with you and you deal with me by sincerity, gentleness, genuineness, but with truth. When you're rebuking someone, it's not giving the authority to be harsh with them. And it it's not giving you the authority to be to be the moral police of their lives. It's not giving the authority to point out every sin that you notice about that person. But it is a call to be genuine and gentle. Approach, but approach that person with truth. So that your genuineness and your gentleness and your truthfulness will make that person see what they are doing so that they can repent to God. That's how you celebrate Jesus Christ as a Passover lamb. Because isn't that how he treated us? He loves us genuinely, gently, but always truthfully. Is he addressing you genuinely, gently, and yet truthfully? Is he addressing you truthfully? Are you seeing more truth about who he is? Are you seeing more truth about who you are? Are you seeing more truth about your life? If you are, know that that's the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And as God is ministering to you that way, we are to minister to each other that way. Like I said, part two of the sermon will continue next week. But I encourage you this week to go to a small group to talk about this passage. Right? That we are not just called to just hang out, and hanging out is a good thing. But we are always called to to treat each other with truth. And I pray that you will join your small group this week, talk about this t- passage, deal with each other truthfully. Let us pray. Father, the way you love us is by always exposing light to us. Your light is truth. You don't expose it harshly. You don't expose it condemningly. But with a genuine sincerity and love, you expose truth to us. For Lord, that is what we need to be built up to love you more to be a better human being. We need exposure of truth in our lives. To understand why you needed to die for us we need to see the truth about who we are. Repentance is never really about guilt or condemnation it is about restoration and forgiveness. Father, we first pray that you will deal truthfully with us. Maybe like some of the people in that movie that I quoted, maybe some of us are in darkness right now. Maybe we're in our homes. Maybe we're alone, and we think, Lord, that we are in secret, and maybe we are doing things that are not that, that, that are quite evil and wrong. To such people, Lord, we pray that you expose truth, Gently but powerfully and mightily, expose truth, so that they will repent of their ways and be restored unto you. You'll also make, embrace. We pray, avenue of sincerity and truth. May we not treat each other the way the world treats us in a superficial manner. May we not do that. But may we, Father, treat each other truthfully and sincerely. But to do that, Lord, we need to be exposed to your word. We need to be exposed to your gentleness. Continually work out your truth and gentleness in us so that we will work out that calling to to each other. Father, you have not called embrace to be large. I don't know how large we will get. I don't know know, what we will be. But what is clear is you have called us to be sincere and truthful to one another. May, May that be our vision, dear God. Father, I pray for those who are in need right now. Some of us are furloughed. Some of us are nervous in the midst of uncertainty. But such people, Lord, remind them that they are to pray for their daily bread. For people who are furloughed, the people who are worried, remind them of the calling, Lord, that they are not called to worry about anything, but pray for all things. Drive them to prayer. For those of us who are nervous, for those of us who are scared, Father, as we said in the call of worship, May our minds go above and be fixated upon you so that no matter where we are, Father, we will know that you are real, you will, we will know that you are watching over us, that we will know that you are guiding us, and may that understanding give us joy and comfort in, this, in the moments of uncertainty. We pray, Lord, that you will heal those of us who are sick. You will, you will comfort those who are distraught, but you will continually build embrace, no matter whether we meet physically or we meet online that you will continually build, embrace through your sincerity and truth. All these things, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.